Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, once again uh, hosting Kwasi Ambofu. Kwasi is Head of Metals and Mining at Bloomberg, uh, NEF, based in London. He covers industrial metals, rare earth metals, battery metals, and the pathways for miners to reach net zero. He completed his PhD in Mineral Economics at the University of Queensland in Australia and currently serves as a land executive director of Imran Global. Kwasi, welcome once again to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila, for having me again. That's fantastic. So I, I thought in this subject of uh, commodity uh, trading that you could help us put some context. What do we mean by a mineral commodity? A mineral commodity is essentially, um, let's, let's split it word by word. So I will start with the second one, which is a commodity. I think a commodity is a primary product, which obviously has value attached to it. So it enables it to exchange hands from one person to another. Then of course you have the mineral attached to it. So it's not just any raw material, but then a mineral of interest. So in this instance, you're looking like uh, at a mineral, like maybe copper, you're looking like a mineral like gold. So these become commodities. So essentially what you're looking at is any resource, um, like a metal that has value attached to it and it enables it to move from one hand to the other. Right. So when we think of commodities that in the mineral industry, are they homogeneous uh, or, or do they differ? And if they do, how do we separate the different commodities into whatever categories uh, might exist? So obviously there's uh, the chemistry version, um, which you can find on the periodic table. So the transition metals, the base metals, and all those kind of classifications. So I think um, that is what the chemist would say, but then obviously for us, we deal in the market. So there are a lot of ways you can actually classify this. So the simple answer is that they are not homogeneous. They really differ based on the way they were created. And that obviously will lead to the chemical or chemistry classification of some of these metals. There are those that were formed at very, very hot temperatures, probably billions and billions of years ago, others cooled more than others, and then you have the different classification. And I can even give you an example of that. But then the second part, it's really the end use. It also classify how these um, metals are actually um, known to we as consumers. And in some instances, you can have both how they were formed and how they were used. And one of the classic examples I like to give is carbon. So carbon exists in different forms obviously based on how it's performed in terms of temperature and pressure, but then also the end use to we as consumers, right? And a carbon that obviously has gone through high temperature, high pressure for a very extended period of time comes out as diamond. And um, Sheila, I know if diamond is an industry you're very familiar with and you probably know a lot about. But then with that same carbon, at a much lesser temperature and at a much lesser pressure, you come out with graphite, Right. And even at a much more less temperature and much more less um, pressure, you come up with coal. So really for me, if you ask me, the two main classifications for these commodities come down to how it was formed and which would give us its chemical properties or chemistry properties. And then obviously the second part is how we consumers use it can also serve as a classification for us. Well, so yeah, it's important, isn't it, to understand that uh, 
when we think of uh, these minerals in the commodity space, it's more how they are used because that then informs how they are traded. And and but but to your point, the first incidence is fundamentally what are they? What are their chemical and physical qualities, which then translates to how can they be used? Uh, and and somewhere there's a link between their natural form to how they are used to what industries they translate to and then how they are they are marketed. Yeah, thinking of market, uh, we know that the commodities are not homogeneous. How does that then translate into how they are marketed? How do they differ, for instance, between how we trade consumer goods and industrial goods? So I think there are a couple of differences and I probably will start with that chemical, oh, sorry, that chemistry um, differentiation. So a mineral can exist in different forms um, in the sense of its use to us as consumers. And one of my favorite metals, obviously, is aluminum. And um, aluminum has to go through a whole value chain in order to become that metal that we end up using in our Coca-Cola or Pepsi can, right? So at that various point, so you either have it as a bauxite, and then obviously it's transforming into alumina, and then it's transforming to alumino, aluminum. In the instance of a consumer product, you don't have that various transformation. And at every point in time in the minerals transformation process, there's trade involved. It's a market. Someone is buying and selling the bauxite for an alumina producer to buy and then process to aluminum and also sells it onto. So the number one distinguishing factor in the mineral commodity market as um, compared to the consumer commodity market, as an example, is the fact that no size fits all. It's a very differentiated market, and each value chain comes with its own market fundamentals. That's number one. The second thing is the fact that in the commodity markets, the industry are price takers. And when I say price takers, essentially what I'm saying is that um, those who produce the metals do not set the price for it. I'm not familiar, Sheila, with any board that exists and determines the price of Apple phones or Samsung phones, or for that matter, any consumer product. I don't know of any board that exists globally or even nationally that set prices for consumer goods. But what I can tell you is that I know of exchanges, I know of benchmark price agencies, I know of associations that come together to set prices for commodities to be traded, and these institutions that set the prices are very different from those that produce them or those that market them. So what that does is that if you are in that market, certainly you have no control of what the end price will be. And that makes it very volatile. And that requires a unique set of trading skills in order to market this product, or you might be at a loss. So if you ask me what the main difference between um, trading commodities and trading consumer goods, I really think that it comes down to one thing where price is really not determined by the producers. And that creates a lot of arbitrage opportunities for these traders. And I think that will be the biggest distinguishing factor between um, them. Yeah. So you, you've said a, a couple of things. The first one is the differentiated value chain which is to say uh, the value chains of different minerals is different. And, and, and so those involved need to understand the structure of each. I think this is very important because 
certainly those upstream do not appreciate this because they think mining is mining is mining. But this other thing is that you have the producers, you have the markets, and then you have these associations in the middle that determine the price. Yeah. I think this is also a very important fact, especially for emerging market producers who often think mining companies have anything to do with determining the price, not realizing that mining companies are just as beholden to the markets as the producer countries. Would that be a fair summation, Kwasi? Absolutely. I think um, that's one of the biggest mismatch um, that most countries that produce commodities. And I think um, in most instances, um, even in policymaking for governments, I think the assumption that the producers are pretty much the end-to-end decision makers across the whole market, um, um, are the end-to-end decision makers across the whole market, I think is really flawed. And um, it's important to appreciate that broad spectrum of players that come together to really make the industry function or the market function. And you, you're absolutely spot on. Right. So l- let me uh, change the question slightly and say, we have the companies that mine and produce the commodity, and then we have those who buy it. And then we have those in the middle who set price. I mean, in your opinion, what really is the value of the entire commodity market ecosystem? If if you were to justify the commodity market ecosystem to, say, emerging market countries, where would you place their value? So I think um, they bring transparency to the market. And um, in so many instances, there have been arguments whether indeed um, the way the market functions today is the best way in terms of um in terms of ticket price, in terms of every other thing. But then I do think that these markets that exist um serves as the the cohesion factor for one reason, price discovery. So the whole idea of the current market that exists in today, um like of the current market, is the fact that no one person has absolute control over how prices are set. And you can imagine a world where several, several centuries ago, one producer has a dominant position and decides that, look, my profits are probably more than I need the coming year. So how do I influence prices for prices to fall for my competitor to operate at a loss? So imagine one institution, one company, one producer had that power or one country sits on so much capacity that it's able to influence the market in order to create a disadvantage for its neighboring country or another country. So in order to address that, I think in the wisdom of commodity markets, this whole functioning system was created where no single institution, no single company, no single country has absolute control of what we call price discovery. So if you ask me what the value of commodity markets are, it really comes down to price discovery. Discovering a fair price that ensures that the market stays in equilibrium. Sure. Uh, and, and this is uh, quite important for everyone because to your point, you, you have those who are in the position of dominance and then you have those that are not. 
you have majors, you have juniors, you have small producers, you have low value producers. And, 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 and when you bring all of that uh, to the market and you have this uh, price discovery uh, opportunity, there, there does come something of a level playing field. And, and, and that, I think, is an important thing uh, to consider. I want to ask you something. So we know, of course, that we have global commodity trading centers that have emerged over the years. I wonder, what do we know about the history behind this emergence of certain centers as uh, leaders in commodity trading? How did they come to be? I think um, um, historically, if you take trade a couple of centuries back, the historical trend has been where demand sits. Okay? So they are obviously producing countries and they are obviously demand countries. So they are those that um they are those that produce the commodities and they are those that buy them. And the historical trend had been that those that buy them tend to trade it from the producers. So you find that especially in pre-colonial days where a lot of commodities, be it timber, be it gold, be it diamond that was produced in Latin America or produced in, um, in, in Africa, ended up in either Chicago, being traded in Chicago or in London because that's where the demand for those commodities are, okay? So that fueled a lot of industrialization in most of these markets. But then obviously, industrialization does not go on forever you reach a maturity stage where you peak. So these commodity traders then started asking themselves that, yes, we've become institutions. It would make more sense to trade in regions where obviously um, our demand sits. But then now, demand is pretty much global. The amount of copper or steel that European the European countries would need could probably not as more is not more than what Asia needs at the moment, or who even knows? Asia probably needs more. So it's less about us trading closer to demand and more about where can we actually make the most savings? Because they are corporates that exist to produce, obviously, at profits, right? So where can we maximize our returns as business? So you found most of these companies now moving into jurisdictions where there are probably less... um less pressure um, from governments on their returns. And that is what created some of the countries that we know, um, like Switzerland, among others. Then down the line, governments started getting more sophisticated in terms of geopolitics. So one country cannot trade with the other. There's restriction on buying these um, commodities from XYZ country. So obviously, restrictions were um, began to be imposed on some countries. So if you, for example, operated in the United States as a trader, there are local regulations that restrict you from trading commodities from country A or country B. So how do traders go around that? So they started now moving to jurisdictions where there are less and less restrictions. And it comes as no surprise that there was an article in the media a few weeks ago that the UAE is emerging as a preferred trading destination for most of these trading markets. So I think in answering your question, I would say that the evolution comes down to three things. A few centuries ago, the focus for most commodity traders was to be in regions that were closer to demand. And it comes as no surprise that London 
and um, commod and sorry, and Chicago were the preferred destinations. Then obviously they evolved to a stage where they looked at where can I operate and make or maximize my returns as a business. Then obviously that led to evolving into countries like Switzerland. And um, now the question is that where can I operate where there are less local restrictions on my ability to trade? And it comes as no surprise that evolution has reached the UAE. Hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. It it's good to to understand that because what what you're really saying is that it depends uh, what historic period you're talking about. At some point, it was just demand. You wanted to get the goods as close as possible to those who were going to use them, and then with time, those market matured and demand uh, started to taper. And 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 that where we are now. Uh, those in the business of trading are now looking at where is the regulatory environment most friendly for purposes of uh, regulation, but also for purposes of tax and other things. And that, you know, the, the Gulf is proving to be very competitive in that uh, area. So, so it brings me to the question then, w when we think about the role of financiers, in other words, those who avail the the finance necessary to procure these commodities. What is their role in, in, if you wish, shaping the structure of the global commodity markets? I think they are actually. Um, is the they serve as the oil that makes the engine run? And um, in simple terms, the job of the trader is to really establish a relationship between the buyer and the seller. Like he, the. The trader is just a middle person that initiates, moderates, regulates, and closes the trade between a buyer and a seller. But then in most instances, they don't actually have the liquidity to close that. So obviously, you have to go to a producer, then you buy as a trader, then you hold on to it with the hope that prices will go up or down, and then you sell it, you offload it to a buyer. In most instances, like I said, the trader doesn't have the liquidity required to pursue that transaction. So that is where the investor, that's where the financial industry comes in. So a trader has obviously um, uncovered an arbitrage in the market where they've realized that, look, this commodity is going to be in shortage over the next three months. We know someone producing it in Botswana in surplus. I know in three months' time, there is going to be a buyer in the United States that would need this because of the weather patterns we are seeing or because of the availability of vessels we are seeing. How do I then purchase this from that producer in Botswana and hold it for three months, hoping that if I was right about weather patterns or vessel availability, I could make a return in selling it to a U.S. customer in three months' time? So the trader has uncovered that arbitrage and then they don't have the liquidity they don't have the cash at hand to finance that trade so they go to an invest i'm um, sorry a bank or they go to a financial institution and then put this proposal in front of them now look i think there's an opportunity here for us if you back me with investments i can give you xyz return so the engine is obviously the trailer that uncovers this arbitrage but then the oil that ensures that that engine functions is the investor, is the financial institution that provides the liquidity for the trader. 
right? So, so they make the the transaction possible because uh, the 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 trader understands the market. The trader takes the view on what the market is likely to do. Some way in there is the sweet spot for both the trader and the financier. And, and the art is the trader to convince the financier, but not only convince, but deliver, build a track record, build a relationship, and therefore be able to capitalize on that reputation. Would that be about right? Precisely. Right. So that brings me to the question then, if, if based on what we have said, how would you describe then the role of the markets in driving demand and price for commodities, given what you have said. You know, if you were to summarize their role in that volatility space, what would you say? I think it comes back to the price discovery. And um, imagine if there existed a market where there is no relationship between supply and demand. Pricing is what regulates that relationship. And the market help us to discover that price. Now, let me explain that. So obviously, if you let the producers alone to determine that trend of a sector, they will keep producing in perpetuity. But then the law of economics exists in everywhere, Sheila, whether you are managing a home, whether you're managing a mine, whether you're managing a country, the laws of economics will impact you. And here is how it impacts this industry. So producers are incentivized to produce in perpetuity, provide supply. The demand, on the other hand, are also incentivized to buy in perpetuity because that's their business model. As a consumer, it's my responsibility. It's in my interest to purchase raw materials to produce whatever goods I'm producing. But then if the producer kept producing forever, the market slips into a surplus. There will be so much goods that we need, and that doesn't help anyone. Now, if the reverse happens, where the demand keeps buying and buying more than it needs, it creates inadequate raw material. It creates inadequate um, um, minerals in this instance. So then, instantly, there's very little for everyone because the demand decided to consume more than it's been produced. What regulates these two relationships to ensure that the producer never produced more than it's supposed to? And the consumer never consumes more than it's supposed to. It's price. Mm. So that is why in periods where producers decide to overproduce, like we've seen in the steel market now or in other commodities, prices suddenly start falling. It happened in lithium a few quarters ago where there was much more production coming online than the consumers needed. So prices started falling and prices now regulate consumption and supply. So if you're a producer, let's not forget, I've already talked about being a price taker. You don't determine prices, but then you're producing a commodity that in 16 months or in six months, prices are fallen by 50%. Shala, let me ask you a question. Would you still producing at the rate at which you are producing? Absolutely not. Precisely. So then you regulate your production to ensure that you don't produce more than the consumer needs. On the flip side, if you're a consumer, and then you consume more than the producers buy and prices started going high overnight. The price at which you purchase these raw materials, if you were purchasing it at a dollar per ton last year, and this year you're you you buying it at $2 per ton, 
would you keep buying at the same rate or would you still consume at the same rate you did last year? Not at all. I can't beg knowledge that uh, it's helpful to the price. Yeah. So if you ask me the simple question of what role um, the markets play in driving demand, I think that it moderates supply and it moderates demand to ensure that the market functions in an equilibrium all the time. Yeah. So I'm going to challenge you on that because uh, while I think in the main that is true, uh, is it fair also to say that but there are certain circumstances when the overall market beyond commodities uh, collapses such that even that capacity to moderate is at least temporarily taken out of if you wish, the realm of the markets, say, for instance, the financial crisis, where the normal interventions that the commodity market would normally use to stabilize uh, were, if you wish, overrun by something much greater in terms of the global uh, uh, financial markets. Would that be correct? Yeah, so I think it goes hand in hand, right? So presumption is directly tied to the wider macroeconomics of every country. And it comes as no surprise, Sheila, that copper is nicknamed Dr. Copper. Um, for the longest time, if you wanted to determine the global health of the economy or the health of the global economy, sorry, you look at the copper price. If the macroeconomy becomes too hot, you see copper prices go high. And if you see the market becoming too cool, you see copper prices fall. So I think the consumption argument I made, it's directly proportional to the macroeconomics. Things like interest rates, things like jobs. Those are the things that drive consumption. Those are the things that drive demand. So I think one way or the other, there is a direct linkage between the supply-demand balance and the macroeconomic um, factors that pretty much run the world. Right. So... um we spoke earlier that uh, we have different commodities and that's uh, based on their physical characteristics and where they end up uh, in terms of their use. Uh, we have different value chains. Uh, my assumption is that different substances are also traded uh, differently. And, and if so, what are some of the fundamental differences, for instance, between how copper and say gold might be traded? So I think um, it's really at the industry level, um, there's pretty much, there's not that much of a significant difference. And maybe let me dial back and really explain how the, the trading market works. So obviously there is a buyer on one end and then there is a, there is a seller on another end. There's a middle person. Um, could be a broker, could be a trader, could be, could be any any um any institution. So what it does is that um at the trade and other market level, there are those that want to sell and there are those that want to buy. So if you take some of these exchanges um which um exist as traded markets for these commodities, they take let's say there's a ten minute window where everybody in the world or everybody on that exchange who is willing to buy um, 
these commodities, you submit your requests. And anyone who is willing to buy that commodity, you also submit your request at the same time. So you are either bidding for it or you're asking for it. So in the end of that window, which could be 10 minutes, which could be five minutes, we look at the average or we determine what the common or what the, like, let me just use average in simple terms. We look at the average of what the bid and the ask is, and then that becomes the benchmark price within that moment for the next 30 minutes, for the next 15 minutes. So this has very little to do with commodities. Where there's variation across commodities is the quality of the product. Obviously, the benchmark quality for copper, which will be set by LME as an example, or the Shanghai Futures Exchange, will be determined on inherent characteristics of copper as a metal. So for example, we want a cure pure copper purity of 99.9% for you to trade it at let's say $8,000 per ton. Now, if the purity of the metal you want to sell, so we've set that as a benchmark price, now $8,000 or 99.9 purity copper metal. If you want to sell yours and your product is above that benchmark um, sorry, the benchmark quality that is required by that exchange, whoever is buying would have to pay a premium. So let's just say the benchmark um, quality required is 99.9 and you go beyond that and do 99.99999% which is probably theoretically impossible. What happens is that whoever is buying from you would have to pay a premium on top of what the minimum required quality is. And if for whatever reason, there is someone selling below that benchmark quality, which is set by the exchange, let's say 80%, then you can only get a discount to what that um, benchmark price is. So that is where I see the differentiations in terms of um, the inherent characteristics of these metals. But then in terms of how they are traded, I think it really comes out to the same process where on one hand, there are people who are asking for the metal at a given price. On another hand, there are people who are willing to buy at a particular time at a given price. After a certain period of time where this goes on, the benchmark price is set for the commodity based on these two interacting. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so you have the, the fundamentals and then you have certain variations depending on the specific commodity, but also what the buyer uh specifies and what the producer is able to produce in terms of quality and grade of metal and and but those as you said are variations but otherwise the fundamentals essentially assume there's somebody willing to pay a certain price for a certain quantity and there's uh, somebody with availability of the same goods and and the window in which a deal can be uh, closed or not closed let me ask you a final question uh I, I, I'm intrigued. We've spoken about uh, metals. What we haven't spoken about is uh, oil. Very simplistically speaking, how does the trading of oil differ from the trading of metals? I think um, function-wise, it's pretty much um same. Um, someone would there will be a seller, there will be a buyer within a window of opportunity. They all have to put in their, their requests. And then if it's accepted, that becomes the benchmark. But then there yeah, are a few differences as well. 
And um, number one, volatility. So oil, it's an plays an inherent role in global economy, probably than any metal will. Because oil influences our everyday decision in the current structure of um in the current structure of should I use a broadly word a broad word like civilization, oil really um runs everything and hopefully that changes as we transition. But then what that means is that every slight decision, whether it's macro or micro, affects oil supply demand and in in, in a sense affect prices. So if you ask for the main difference, I think that there's a lot of volatility that goes on in the trade of oil um, than probably most other metals. That's number one. The second thing, which is also related, is the volumes. So if you're looking at the volumes of oil traded on a given day, the barrels of oil traded, it dwarfs any metal you can think of. So the volumes certainly does have an impact. And once again, if we go back to the fundamentals of trading, it's really a numbers game. It's really a volume game. The more people that are on the market making these buy-sell decisions or buy-sell transactions, the more resilient and transparent and reliable the prices are. So the volumes that oil has significantly dwarfs metals, and that makes this price discovery a much more um, inclusive process. The third thing I will talk about, which it's very, very important for the future. Now, oil is a commodity that once you use, it's gone, right? Um, I know there's law of physics that talks about energy is not created. It just goes into other forms. If you bought oil or gas today and put it in your car, once the combustion is completed, it's gone. It's turned into something else, either CO2 also, it's a commodity that once you trade it, it's gone. It doesn't come back. It doesn't recirculate. It doesn't, it really has no utility to the trader ever again. Now, Sheila, metals is a different ballgame. The gold that was mined 500 years ago is still in circulation and it could come back into the market as a traded commodity. And the reason that I bring this is that the energy transition, obviously, um, if it grows as company countries expect it to do, would enable oil give way to metals as the raw materials for energy production. And what that means is that for oil, like I said, you trade it and it's gone. It never comes back into the into an inventory, never comes back into the market. But then for metal, you have an opportunity to recycle it. And that creates a whole new trading trading opportunity as well. So I think I'll probably end here, but then the three key things which differ, uh, differentiates trading oil and trading metals is number one, the volatility, because of the entrenched position oil has in the global economy and the fact that the slightest change in whether it's macro government policies or even company decisions affects prices and affects everything else. The second thing is the volumes. Traded oil in terms of volume, significantly dwarf those of metals. And then finally, the fact that our metals are recyclable and it gives opportunities for traders to trade it over and over again. Whereas with oil, once the initial trade is executed, that is it. Fantastic. Well, uh, 
Kwasu, that was very enlightening. Thank you very much once again for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. And it's always a privilege to join you as well. Thank you.